Micro interactions are small animations that delight our users, and they're changing the way that we design and build our applications. Micro interactions have many benefits, like enhancing perceived performance, indicating a state change, and drawing users' attention to something on the page. Today, we'll dive into micro interactions and the animation libraries that you can build them with. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. Hey, Kelly, have you heard about this cool tool called AWS Amplify? Tell me about it. It's a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack, serverless, and cloud-based web and mobile apps. You get to use whichever framework or technology you want on the front end. That sounds cool. Will it help me get up and running with things like hosting? Yeah. Authentication? You betcha. Manage GraphQL? Totally. How about serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, file storage? Yes to everything! Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers, like yourself, Kelly, to be successful because you can use your existing skill set to build real-world, full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console also allows you to use a GitHub repository to deploy to a globally available CDN with CI and CD built-in. It's super cool. Where can I learn more? If you want to learn more about AWS Amplify, visit aws-amplify.github.io. How often have you struggled to learn programming because you just couldn't find the right resource to suit your learning style? I struggled for nearly a year before stumbling upon a website known as Brennan Masters. I've been a long-time paid user of the online learning platform simply because I find the courses to be comprehensive and beginner-friendly. They have the best teachers in the tech industry, and they're one of the reasons I was able to land my dream job. With Front and Masters, you can learn web development, responsive design, backend development, animations, testing, algorithms, data structures, and more. You can pick a course you're interested in or follow one of the learning paths like React, Vue, Angular, data visualization with D3, Node.js, and more. To learn more, head to frontendmasters.com. So I guess we'll start by discussing micro-interactions, and I'm curious if either of you have ever heard this term before. I have, yes. Um, it's something that's, especially like in the e-commerce space, these are the kinds of user experience improvements that you can use to, um, you know, really, I hate to use the word improve again, but honestly, it's something that I'm, I'm very closely looking at when when I'm doing like UX audits on, on e-commerce sites. Yeah, I've also heard of them. But this is a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I'm into performance, but um, I'm more of like a JavaScript, Python kind of person. So I don't do as much with the UI, UI stuff. So this one's a little bit different for me. Nice, nice. Well, I hope that you all learned something today. I hope you can... <laughs> that sounds condescending. I don't mean it in a condescending. I hope you guys can learn something. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about kind of the psychology behind these small interactions. First of all, a couple of examples. You know, when you hover over the like button on Facebook, if you still use Facebook, they like pop up this little menu with different reactions. That's a micro interaction. So you're seeing like these little like... It basically is a response to you hovering over. It's saying, oh, okay, let's pop up a menu and show all these cute little animations. And they innately make you feel good and they actually can get you addicted to products. So um, when you double tap on an Instagram photo and you see the heart animate, that's a micro interaction. And they're really, really important because 
Well, for several reasons. Let's talk about the first one. And Allie, you might have some thoughts on this, but they enhance perceived performance. And there's a really great quote that I love that says there are two kinds of time, clock time and brain time. So the first is the objective measure of time, but the second is how a person actually perceives time. Do you want to give a small like definition or example of what perceived performance is? Yeah. So perceived performance is how fast somebody feels like the page is. So we can have timers to check how long a page actually takes till first paint or to load or anything like that. And we can have objective time and performance, um, actual performance, but you, the user is going to still perceive that as either being slow or fast. And there are ways that you can make it so that it feels faster to the user, even if an API call takes a little bit of time or the page takes a little bit of time to render. Um, so things like transitions and, um, even just adding like a spinner so that they know that something is happening on the page. That'll make it feel like, the website is faster than it is. Um, Eli Fitch, who is just one of the smartest people I've ever met, and he has an amazing talk on perceived performance. So I'll link that in the show notes. I think he actually spoke at CraftConf in Budapest about this when I was there a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken. But it was one of those conferences where they had multiple tracks. And at the time, I was attending a different talk, which ironically turned out not to be so great. And I'm a little sad that I didn't go see his performance talk because I heard it was great. I just put a link to the presentation with speaker notes in our show notes. Lots of notes going on. That's a lot of notes. Yeah. So users are actually willing to wait a longer amount of time if they perceive or think that something is happening in the UI. Like Tally's point, a loading spinner, a progress bar is even better if something is loading because you actually get a finite number on where they are in the the state of this progress. Um, But micro interactions can also be used to draw attention to something. So if here's a good example, um, the typing indicator on an iPhone. So when someone is typing an iMessage, you see that little typing bubble. You also see this on like Twitter DMs and uh, Facebook Messenger, like all the messaging apps are doing it. Although I I really feel like iMessage was kind of the first like app to do it Um, but it can be used to draw your attention to and say oh hey like someone's typing or if you have a notification these um what are those called those fly-in notifications that come in the top right um like toast notifications um those can actually draw your attention and say hey something really relevant is going on right now this is what's this is what's up and it's a lot less jarring to users if you animate it in and out um because otherwise they're totally just thrown out of context taken out of whatever context they were they were in So one other thing that they can do is indicate state change. So again, progress bars, um, what state is this API request in at the moment? Um, It can be used to indicate that a form that you're currently filling out is incorrect. So if you've entered the wrong password or if you haven't put in a proper email address to sign up for a new account, you can actually use these little micro interactions where maybe the border um, kind of animates and is red and text appears and says, hey, this is not a valid email address um, and you need to fix it. So that can indicate uh, a success or an error state. They can also be used to inform users, again, about the status of a task, uh, but they can also really be used to build habits. We see a lot of gamifying going on in this day and age and also these little interactions whether you realize it or not this this heart animation on instagram it really does get you to come back like subconsciously your brain likes to see that and it's a reward essentially for triggering an action uh and so 
it's kind of like the dark side of UX almost where you're intentionally getting your users hooked on your product by incorporating these fun little animations. You know, one of the ones that I always think about is I play this game called Flow Free on my phone. And as soon as you complete uh, a level, it like does this nice little like page flipping animation and it keeps me on the app. And then next thing I know, I've completed 40 levels and I've been staring at my phone for I don't know how long. It's addicting. I feel like all of our episodes come back to Atomic Habits <laughs> because this is another one that it's like you have the reward for the habit and it makes it so you keep doing that habit and it's the same thing here. So <laughs> I feel like that's our most crucial episode. All of our other ones branch out from it. Um, I have a recommendation if you want to see a bunch of examples of these micro interactions, there is this newsletter called UI Movement that I have been subscribed to for years and years. And it sends you like examples of five really, really, really nice animations each week. So would recommend. I will also put that in the show notes. I feel like I'm sure Kelly at the very least, and I'm sure Ali, you know too, but Pavlov's dog, that experiment where was it Isaac Pavlov? Was that his name? He was a psychologist. Uh, and he essentially, was it operantly conditioned these dogs or was it classical conditioning? I can't remember. Classical conditioning. Classical, classical conditioning where basically he would he would ring a bell and every time he would ring the bell, like he, the dogs would get a treat. And it got to the point where he would ring the bell, but he wouldn't give them a treat, but their mouths would start to salivate because they expected it. So they were conditioned to expect something in return. So, you know, when you are liking someone's post and you see this little animation, you expect to see it. Like if you were to like someone's photo and you didn't get this animation all of a sudden, you would be... Uh, it, it would bother you, I think, subconsciously. So it's yeah. like we're Pavlov's humans. It's Ivan Pavlov, by the way. I, I was so close. You, <laughs> you have were. to remember. I took I took IB psychology in high school, like my junior year. So this is what, like, oh, my gosh. I've been out of college for five years, so about seven years ago. That's pretty good. I at least got the letter, right? Yeah. Um, you got the last name. You got the important parts out of it. Nobody really cares about his first name. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and – I think the most obvious benefit of these little animations is that they just delight our users. They can take a task as menial as filling out a form for your dentist and make it really fun. There's a really cute example I found on Dribble. Maybe we can link it in the show notes, but it's like this little it's I think it's a pediatric dentist, so it's for children and it's this cute interactive form with little monsters and their teeth and it's really cute. So we'll link that in the show notes as well. But yeah, we can definitely use these animations to our benefit. Um, and so now that we kind of understand why we can use them, how do we actually build them? And so I've kind of come up with these three different phases of building a micro interaction. Um, I couldn't find too much documentation on it. I still think that this is a relatively new field. And so these are three steps that I came up with. But the first step is to define your interaction. Um, so what is actually going to be like triggering this animation? Is it you're hovering over an element? Is that you've tried to submit a form and we need to check, you know, if it's complete or not? Um, is it that uh, the user receives a notification? So define your interaction. What does the user have to do or what does the system have to do to get this animation to run? The second is going to be a state definition. So what are the different states of our animation? If we think about like a mobile nav sliding in, is it visible or is it not visible? So those are the two states. If we're thinking about maybe a photo gallery, for example, um, it could be in many different states in regards to which photo it's showing. Um, so if we have five photos, it could be in state zero through four if we're starting it 
base zero. So first define what triggers your animation and secondly, define what states it can be in. Um, and once we have our states, we can actually define our animation. What things do we want? What properties do we want to be changing across time? And what duration do we want those to take? Um, so those are the three basic steps that, that I've kind of come up with to building these interactions. Um, and while these are really great, there are definitely some do's and don'ts. Can either of you think of some do's and don'ts that you may or may not want to think about when you're building these animations? Something that I think about like right off the bat is accessibility with animations is making sure that your markup is still going to make sense to a screen reader and it doesn't give anybody a seizure or all those important things. Performance as well as important, you know, um, perf you know, we talk about perceived performance here, but if your animations are super cool, but they also completely destroy the, the performance of the site, then there's a that's not really a great trade off. Yeah, definitely. I that th totally just made me think about uh, a post that I had found about the 12 principles of animation. And I just remember this. We'll link this in the show notes as well. Um, but in the 1981 book, The Illusion of Life, the Disney animators, two Disney animators actually introduced these 12 principles. Um, and there's a bunch of them. There's um, ease in, ease out, anticipation, staging. Um, you can take a look from the show notes. But this reminds me of the fact that thinking about how long our animations need to take, the longer, or I'm sorry, the farther an element has to move across your UI, the longer it needs to take. And the shorter amount of time, or the shorter distance, the shorter amount of time. Users are very impatient, and I hate nothing more than when you go to a website and you know that the site is loaded, and instead they make you sit there and watch their really cool progress bar, like load up their site. I'm like, nothing <laughs> is loading. There's no data, like, can you stop making me wait four seconds for this? And, you know, Ali briefly mentioned seizures. So if we have a media query for prefers reduced motion, just make sure that you're not actually showing this animation to users that um, have disabilities that actually cause them to have seizures or, you know, ensure that you're essentially catering to everyone. Uh, and some people just cannot handle motion in their UI, in your UI. So you need to be really careful. Um, we also need to make our animations relatable uh, in the sense that things don't move linearly. I don't know if you've noticed, but things have mass, things have weight, uh, and as such, they don't, if you drop a ball, it's not going to drop in a linear state. It actually is going to have some... I was really bad at physics, so... Uh, it, it's not speed, it's like acceleration. Velocity. Velocity! Hey. Hey. High school physics. More like middle school <laughs> physics. I actually like almost failed physics. It's fine. Um, yeah, I but, completely dropped out of physics, so. But gravity exists whether we want it to or not. Uh, and it's pretty useful to, to have. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, objects have gravitational pull if you drop them. And so as such, we want our animations to kind of mimic that, um, which we'll talk about one of my favorite libraries in just a few minutes. Um, and that is a physics-based library. But just be careful when you're building these. A lot of libraries use cubic Bezier functions that you actually have to manually go in and set the duration and set the transition timing function and things like that. So just make sure it kind of mimics the real world because otherwise it's going to be really weird for your users if things are either linear or they're too fast or too slow, things like that. Um, the last is just to be intentional. So I don't know if you realize, but animations tend to draw your eye. And what that means is you need to be careful 
and not put them on absolutely everything. If you put animations on everything in your UI, your user's not going to know what to focus on. Um, so if they're filling out a form, for example, and you do some kind of crazy animation to let them know that there's an update or something like that, it's going to pull their context to that notification and they could potentially forget what they're doing, especially if they have cognitive disabilities. Like a lot of people with cognitive disabilities cannot remember what they were doing. Uh, and so we need to be really careful about these animations and ensure that they do not break their train of thought. I'm just trying to picture a site now that has completely unnecessary animations while trying to fill out a form. That's just like moving things around for the hell of it. And <laughs> there is a subreddit that's all like bad UX or something like that. I don't know. I have to look up the exact name, but it's all things like that, like where things are moving around the page when you're trying to fill out the form or you have to do like a dial to type in a phone number or whatever. That's always my favorite one, like the stopwatch for a phone number that you have to like stop it at the right number or reset it and then go to the next number. I love when people put um, those, what are they, select boxes on the date you were born, but they start they start you at like 1900 yeah, something crazy, and you have to like scroll all the way. It's like, who was born in 1900, please? I would, I would love to look at their database and just see how many people selected 1900 for their yeah. birth. Or like the current year, what baby is what baby is born? Like, <laughs> I'm gonna go sign up for a Facebook account. Like, can you not start it at 2020? Like, seriously, your fetus is not gonna go on there. Um, anyway. <laughs> So maybe now that we've talked about the do's and don'ts of animations, we can actually talk about some libraries to build them. Have either of you used a lot of CSS animations in your code? I, you know, I use CSS animations as far as like hover states um, for for buttons and links and and drop downs, like for mega menus and stuff like that. But um, I haven't gotten too uh, too fancy with it, and it's an area that I definitely want to explore. It's something that we. Uh, included in the design for the new taproom site. So I'm going to have to figure it out. I'm pretty excited. That's awesome. I have done like fun animations. I do a lot of like visual art with code, or at least I used to. I guess I don't really anymore. Um, life gets busy. Um, but with that, I used to do a bunch of animations. And then also on top of that, when I'm building example apps for students or whatever. I'll sometimes add fun animations in or whatever, just so that they're exposed to something, even if we're not teaching it directly. So that's mostly, and also when I was a software engineer, sometimes you put animations on stuff, like mostly fade-ins or whatever, but. Yeah, let me tell you that doing complex timeline animations with CSS is the biggest pain in the ass of a task I've ever had to do, especially mounting and unmounting is really painful because it's like you have to work with appending and is depending a word? Appending and <laughs> I'm going to use depending. I like depending. I'm going to make else, it a thing. But that's, that's okay. It, it totally does, but I'm going to use it. So appending and depending classic <laughs> uh, on your DOM elements to get these animations to like happen on a timeline is really painful. You can use keyframes that can either take a percentage of the duration. So at 0% of the duration, I want the element to be in this state. Uh, so maybe opacity 0, um, transform, translate, x, negative 100%. So it starts off the screen. It's completely transparent. And then by 100%, I want it to be fully opaque. I want to be able to see it. And I want it to transform, translate, x, 100% or to 0 so that it's actually in your UI now. 
but it can also take to and from values. Um, but yeah, these are not super great for doing complex animations. CSS animations are good for things like changing or like animating the background color on a button if you hover over it or I don't know, smaller tasks in my opinion. But once you actually have to do these complex timeline animations, I would recommend at that point to pick up a library. Um, now there is uh, this argument that, well, aren't these libraries really performance heavy? And the short answer is no, I really don't think that they have massive performance implications when you compare them with CSS. Um, I don't think that's a very strong argument. I think Sarah Jesner talked about this in one of her front end masters courses. Um, so I, I don't want to say it's a fact, but I'm pretty sure that the performance implications of using a library like GreenSock are very negligible. They're really not going to have a massive impact on your performance. Um, that being said, if you're animating things that you shouldn't be animating, let's talk about that. What properties shouldn't we animate? Does anybody know? Pretty much anything that causes repaint, right? Yes, you win a cookie. I don't have any. Um, <laughs> so yeah, anything that causes a repaint, what kinds of things cause repaint? Sizes of things, positions of things. Um, those are the ones that I know off the top yes. of my head. I think position in the sense that like if you're changing from like uh, yeah, relative exactly. to absolute yeah. positioning, anything that disturbs the document flow. But um, so here's an example. Uh, it, let's say you're building a, a mobile nav. Let's say it's about 400 pixels in width and it spans your full viewport height. And um, let's say it's position fixed. So regardless of where you are scrolling, it's going to stay in the same place on your UI. If the, the bars collapse so your menu is hidden, um, you might think, oh, let me just set width to zero. And when it's visible, I'll make width 400. Well, it's going to cause repaint, I think, like 400 times <laughs> because I don't think that – I don't know if that's an accurate number. But it's going to cause a lot of repaints because you're actually changing the width. It's going to – well, I guess technically position fix does take it out of the document flow. So I'm not sure if that – but the, I mean, the element itself, though, you would watch. Like, if you have yeah. content in it, it's going to be, like, super cramped, and then it's going to, you know, slowly yes, spend out. Yes, that's also so. very true. Um, so, yeah, and, uh, as opposed to animating this width, you can actually just um, have it be the full 400 pixel width already, but just transform the tra – transform translate is what I'm saying – but translate this negative 100% of its width off of the screen. So it'll start at negative 400 pixels to the left, and um, when it's – active or when the menu should be shown, it'll transform translate to its origin or 0%. That's much more performant than animating with and height. Cool. So one thing that I wanted to bring up, and now I'm going to ask you actually if this is true or not, but something that I was told is if you can use CSS for something, you 100% should for performance reasons. Like if you have the choice between doing CSS and JS for an animation, pick CSS 100% of the time because the way that the browser optimizes CSS, it will be a lot more performant than doing it in JavaScript, especially um, because some of the CSS operations can go to the GPU. But now I'm like, is that even true or not? Well, I think for certain things, absolutely. So like if you're trying to put a hover on a button or if you're trying to, like I think the point here is use like pseudo selectors, use pseudo elements like before and after. Um, animate things in CSS that you can as opposed to using um, dynamic programming or dynamically generating these types of things because, yeah, I think it is more performance heavy to actually query for the DOM nodes and then find the one you're looking for and then do additional things. But that's only to a certain point, right? Like if you're doing complex timeline animation at that point, yeah. you should absolutely be you using a library. CSS. Um, and you shouldn't be writing your own yeah. JavaScript from scratch to do it either, I don't think. I yeah, have I a I have a weird yeah. tangent. 
Have you ever attempted to browse the web with JavaScript disabled? It's an adventure. It is an experience that you're not going to like. Don't do it. <laughs> I feel like we should segue out of that because I'm just going to get sad. But <laughs> also, if you're interested in performance, we did a whole episode on this. So, but I don't know. Shameless self-promotion of that. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Um, cool. So let's actually – so you've gotten to the point in your UI where you know you need to lo- use a library. So which one do you go to? I am going to promote my favorite library in the whole entire world because it's the only one that I use. Um, And that's React Spring. So in case you couldn't guess, it is a React library, um, which is a pain in the ass if you're a Vue developer or an Angular developer. But let me tell you why React Spring is so great. It's great because it's physics-based. So you're not getting this – These you don't have to think about – an object's mass and tension, it does it for you. You can still kind of customize these things, but um, it takes away the pain of having to make your animation. Like if you don't have a designer to work with to design these cubic Bezier functions for you, it takes that away. Um, you don't need to understand it to use it. Um, but it also works with React hooks. So it is super easy to hook into your application. Um, and there, I have a few talks conference talks that I've given about this topic that are, I think they're online. So if you want to go watch it, we should link that in the show notes as well. Um, but the basic premise is there are like five main hooks um, and you can just essentially use them to mount and unmount elements from the DOM. So if you have a modal that needs to animate in, you don't need this modal in your DOM at all times. You only need it there if it's being shown. So this is where use uh, transition can come in handy because this actually can mount and unmount elements from the DOM. You can also use this hook to cycle through different elements depending upon state. So if you are creating a photo, uh, what is it? A photo application? I'm totally losing my English now. Um, a photo album, like an online photo album. Uh, and it's uh, you can just cycle through your photos. It can actually mount and unmount these different images depending upon what your state is, which photo you want to be showing. The other cool thing that I really like about React Spring is you can chain things together. There is use trail and use chain. I've only worked with use trail, but basically you can have animations in an order. Like you can order your animations. So the example that I have is this full page navigation where you click the hamburger menu you get the full page animating in the like the background of your menu and then your menu items will successively animate in one after the other and then when you want this menu item to go away first the menu items will fade out and then the whole menu background will fade like slide up Um, that's a really good use case for these complex animations and it's super easy to set up uh, have you guys heard of React Spring other than you <laughs> only from you? It? No, I've literally only <laughs> yeah. heard of it from you. <laughs> cool, to cool, be cool, fair, cool, cool, cool. I don't really do that much with React, so I'm I spend more time in in Vue.js than I do in yeah. React. So that's why I wouldn't have. I spend a lot of my life in React, just not a lot with um, animations. So. Nice, cool. I think um, I don't want to go too deep into. Too many more libraries. I will mention a few that I know are are great, um, but I don't necessarily have experience with all of them. So Greensock Animation Library is one that has been around for a while. Sarah Drasner has a friend and master's course on advanced SVG animations with Greensock. And I know a lot of people use it, especially for WebGL uh, and 3JS projects. So both of those are 
3D graphics libraries. Um, WebGL also does 2D interactive renderings. Um, so it's really popular with people doing like data visualizations and things like that. But I personally found it really difficult to use. I didn't understand tweening at all. Still confuses me to this day. But that is definitely an option if you are looking for an animation library. Yeah, I feel like that's like the classic one in my mind is GreenSock is the OG. It was the OG. The catches, I also agree that it is super complicated and totally confused me. So much math. Like, I think a question that people often have is that or new programmers have is how much math do you actually need to be a programmer? And I would say that in it depends on the niche that you pick. And if you are really into animations, it's going to be way more math heavy than almost any other subfield of programming that I have seen, especially if you use something like GreenSock. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it was just one of those libraries I always wanted to learn, but I just found it way too confusing. And then once I found React Spring, I was like, oh my gosh, it's possible for an animation library to be easy to use. Uh, and I want to just give a shout out to Scott Talinsky for his React Spring course. I've taken it twice and I loved every second of it. Um, yeah, we'll definitely also link that. That's again. Awesome. Isn't GreenSock also paid? Like you have to pay for a license for it? I thought oh, it was I don't like... Know something that you had to pay for that was another reason that i didn't learn it back in the day yeah i'm not sure but uh it's worth looking into i guess i think it probably works again with multiple frameworks it was just one of those things that i never took the time to learn one of the the new kids on the block it's kind of the hot thing it's framer motion and i know i just mentioned scott's course level up tutorials did the react spring course he's also in the works uh he's creating one about framer motion this is also a React library, but it's open source and it works on desktop and mobile. What's really cool with Framer Motion is that you can take these design elements from your canvas and actually turn them into React components. So like your designers can actually create these components and export them as React components. They don't even know how to code. Uh, they don't have to. So that's really, really great, especially for collaborating with your designers. Um, just a couple of things it can do. You can make your elements draggable. It works really well on scroll. I know this is something that... It, I struggled to do in the past was like, how do I animate things depending upon the scroll position? Um, it's supposed to be pretty good with that. You can animate your SVG paths so it can actually like trace around an SVG and then color it in. Works with CSS variables. And again, it helps you mount and unmount elements from your DOM. So if you're looking for an animation library, uh, I would definitely recommend Framer Motion. It would, it would be interesting to kind of do like a comparison of Framer Motion and React Spring and kind of see which one is maybe more robust. That'd be an interesting thing to look into. I also feel like Vue.js doesn't get enough love in these libraries because Framer Motion is for React and React Spring is obviously for React. Greenstock can be used for, for Vue.js. Yeah, I did just add Vue to our outline though because Vue has a bunch of built-in supports to just Vue itself for animations, which I think is really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't surprise me since Sarah's on the core team and she's been really, really great at kind of advocating for these yeah, animation libraries. for sure. Definitely. So I don't really want to talk too much about other ones. I'll just mention a couple. Hover.css is just a collection of CSS hover effects that you can use in your UI. Um, but again, it's one of those things where like if you're doing something really simple and you can write it in plain CSS, I would just recommend doing that. Um, Lottie is a 
library created by Airbnb that's really, really cool. However, it basically, you need to know After Effects to be able to use it. Interesting. You really have to be, yeah, it kind of sucks because it looks like a really cool technology, but um, it basically will render your After Effects animations so that your developers can use them. It sucks because it's something I wanted to try out, but I don't know After Effects, so it kind of stopped me from checking it out. I'm sure there's a course on After Effects if you wanted to learn it. Yeah, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> Um, yeah, and just a couple others to name are 3JS, AnimeJS, MoJS. I love how they all have JS in their name. Um, I guess for SEO purposes, that would make sense. Uh, uh, Velocity and then View Bulletin Animation Support. Who wrote that? Who wants to explain oh, that? Oh, just I put it in there that View has a lot of stuff built in. Oh, built in. I was like, what oh. is Bulletin <laughs> Animation built Support? Built in. Sorry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was like, okay, cool. No, no, it's all good. Um, my English is deteriorating the longer I'm abroad. So, um, yeah, those are just kind of like the basic libraries that I'm familiar with. If you have any others, like feel free to let us know like what you've been playing around with. There are so many out there. I feel like there's a new library. Anime.js <laughs> has super fun animations on their site. I like looking at them. A lot of these, again, the math intimidates me. It's It's a lot. Yeah, I'm not good at math. Like, I am, but I'm not. Like, I'm not good at calculus. I'm good at, like, discrete mathematics, like all these logic tables and automata and things that you would learn in a computer science degree about, like, logic math. I'm good at that, but ask me to do calculus and I will fail it. <laughs> geometry for me is hard. It's been so many years since I've had to do actual geometry, so I should really study up on that. If anybody has good resources for learning math things, let us know. You know, I think this is a really good opportunity to segue into shout outs because I want to shout out to all of the parents at home who have been homeschooling their kids and having to learn all these things all over again to make sure that the kids can, you know, do their homework or, you know, whatever it is. Like that is a lot of work on top of, you know, working and doing house stuff and everything else that happens. That's an awesome one. Mine is for also, I feel like all of ours are like quarantine related. If things dramatically change in the world before these episodes come out, which I doubt that they will, but um, we're recording these all in, or most of these early episodes in early May. And so that's why all of these shout outs are quarantine related. Mine is also quarantine related. Uh, bon Appetit has this YouTube channel called Test Kitchen, and it is so much fun. Is that where they recreate common, like, pizza rolls, but, like, gourmet? Yeah, so that's one of the, the shows on there is um, Claire's Gourmet Eats or something like that, Gourmet Makes, and she tries to recreate, like, candy and junk food and all of these things, and it's so much fun. Um, so she'll do, like, recreating Twizzlers or making instant ramen or – any of these things that you buy packaged. Um, I think that it's a really fun thing to watch. They've got so many fun shows on there. And um, I don't even really have a kitchen in my apartment. I live in like a 300 square foot studio, but it's fun to watch even though I don't cook things. Emma, what's yours? I was just going to say, like, this is a total like brain tangent. But what do you think chefs do when they go home? Like, if I cooked all day for other people, the last thing I want to do is come home and cook for myself. Like, I would either order takeout or just eat. I like, feel like they ramen. love it. I you have they come they home still and cook? cook. Yeah, I have uh, a friend who uh, is married to a chef who uh, owns a couple of restaurants, and 
I see on Instagram all the things that he's cooking at home, and I'm like, this is stupid. This is unfair. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm just still making spaghetti like four days. No, a week. Roderick, you can't have dinosaur chicken nuggets tonight. Filet. <laughs> okay. Um, my shadow is. I wrote this wrong in the show notes. It's funny. Um, it's this book that I read called, called Humble Pie. It's so good. I bought this on a whim. It markets itself as a comedy of math errors. And it walks through um, – the first example it opens up with is – I think it was Pepsi. It was 1995. Pepsi ran a promotion where people could actually collect Pepsi points and trade them in for things. And so like a T-shirt was 75 points and sunglasses were 175 points. And basically, they want to do something totally crazy. And so they were like, okay, well, for 7 million Pepsi points, you can actually uh, get a private jet, like a military-grade private jet. And they were like, totally fine. Well, what they didn't realize is that that's actually an achievable amount of points to get. They just picked a randomly high number that were like, oh, no one can actually get that. Well, some guy did. Um, So basically, he had to spend $700,000 to achieve that point status, but to buy a $20 million aircraft. It was a good deal. So anyway, they ended up they ended up going to court for it um, t- and settling a lawsuit. Um, and it goes through all these different examples of math errors that have happened, and whether it's in the you know, airline industry with programming, there's a lot of really good programming, like the um, Y2K issues, and also there's going to be one in several years with our computers where like things stop working for some reason. Um, it's very very good. It was super funny, and I cannot recommend it enough. Well, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, highly recommend. And it's really funny, too. This is the last thing. I, I promise I'm not sponsored. Um, like, he put three different math errors in his own book. So one of the examples is he starts his page numbering at the highest page count. So it starts at page 313 and goes all the way down to zero. Uh, and then it has, like, the rollover error at the back. So once it hits page zero, then it goes to uh, – what is it? Like, 4,294,000. Like, it <laughs> – it follows the same programming rollover errors that you might hit. It's really, That's really awesome. good. I highly recommend it. I added it to um, my Goodreads to read. Yeah. I'm trying to yeah. like binge buy books a little bit less um, because it's become a problem. Yeah, same. I keep buying books about pandemics. Like I went to the bookstore and bought a book about uh, a virus that takes over the whole world. And the lady checking me out was laughing at me. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I like to read about pandemics, apparently. Um, no, it's fine. Anyway, uh, if you like this episode, <laughs> tweet about it. We really like reading all of your tweets. We find them really encouraging. We actually got a really fun Apple podcast review that said that we were – what did it say we were Spice like? Girl. Uh, we Spice Girls. Uh, yeah. Made my programming. life. Like that is the best compliment somebody yeah. could ever give. Yeah, but the question is what Spice Girl are we? Like who am I? I feel like I'm Baby Spice because I look like I'm 12. <laughs> yeah. I'm sporty spice because I work out all the time. Oh, Just kidding. Like posh spice then. Yeah. What were the other ones? Ginger and scary spice? Oh, ginger. Yeah, I don't think I'm either of them. I don't know. I like to think of the spice girls as like the seven dwarves instead. So I'm like sleepy spice. Oh, I'm cumin. Anyway. <laughs> um um this episode we're gonna be giving away a subscription for friend and masters which is my absolute favorite platform to learn on and you can if you want to learn more about svg animation sarah dresner has a course advanced svg animations on there that you can watch so if you tweet about our episode we will pick a winner to give that subscription to uh we also now have a patreon so if you want to actually support us and help us pay our guests help us um keep doing what we're doing you can go to patreon.com slash ladybug podcast 
Uh, this month's Ladybug Book Club book, <laughs> speaking of books, is Make It Stick by Peter C. Brown. So if you want to join in on the discussion and um, talk about how we learn and how we should teach, it was Allie's book club pick of the, the month, and I'm halfway through it, really enjoying it. Um, you can go to our Goodreads group. You can find that through our website, ladybug.jav, or just search us on Goodreads. We post new podcasts every Monday, so make sure you're subscribed to be notified and leave us a review. And with that, I hope y'all have a great day. Bye. Bye. Yo!